following sermon is from Faith Bible Church, located in Murrieta, California. More information about Faith Bible Church is available at www.faith-bible.net. Get your Bibles open, get your outline if you can, get set, let's dive in and see if we can get a great picture of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, picture these different scenarios, they're very brief in your mind, Picture everyone panics, but you alone remain calm. Picture the room full of parents just savagely complaining, but you start to give thanks. Uh, The crowd is screaming at the authority, and at the same time you start to pray. Or in a group, every story becomes more and more boastful, But you describe all your failures and then you laugh at yourself. You know, how could that actually happen? Well, interesting enough, when you submit to Christ in salvation, He actually gives you new internal audacious attitudes that result in radical behavior. He does it. That will result in your happiness. When you bow before the sovereign God of the universe in salvation, He creates in you some awesome attitudes that distinguish you, a real believer, from a make-believer. You're different. You're unique. They will make the lost take notice. These audacious attitudes describing the internal transformation that Christ generates in every authentic believer, but there is genuinely one condition that you could actually have these attitudes and be that person, and that is this. You must be in Christ. You must be born again. At the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord Jesus Christ does something amazing. He tells people not how to live, but he teaches them the kind of inner attitudes that he creates in Christians that results in amazingly unique and different behavior. He changes the inside, which then changes the way you live. He does it. So open your Bibles, if you're not there already, to Matthew chapter 5. If you're new with us, we're working our way through the Sermon on the Mount. We're just beginning, so you're just in time. And as we study this incredible sermon, I want to make sure I give you some keys to understanding it so that we really get on the same page. This sermon is really not telling you to change your external behavior. It's not. It's moving you to submit to Christ so that you will be transformed internally, which then changes your behavior. Uh, The key to happiness is actually to be made new by Jesus Christ. In fact, you have to be perfect to be right with God and to get to heaven. You have to be perfect. And only Christ can cover you with His perfect righteousness. You've got to be transformed in order to truly follow Christ and be a true disciple of Christ. And only Christ can give you a new heart and empower you to do so. So this message, the Sermon on the Mount, is actually the Sermon on the Heart. It's actually talking about what's going on internally with you. For the non-believer, this sermon will often convince you that you've got to give up all your efforts and abandon them and saying, I'm going to just trust in Christ. For the believer, this sermon is a fantastic banquet of truth. Some of you have studied it and you know how rich it is. In fact, it's tasty, right? And it's also brief. That's shocking. If chapters 5, 6, and 7 contained the entire sermon, then Christ completed it, are you ready for this, in 12 minutes. Wow, does that shock you a little bit? Please gasp or something, I don't know. 
Peter's Pentecost sermon. Remember in Acts chapter 2, it was only three minutes long. And 3,000 people were saved. But my hero, the Apostle Paul, he uh, spoke in Acts 20 until midnight, and Eutychus fell out the window and died. So that's my mentor, right? Now, before you scold me for preaching too long, remember many people, uh, perhaps thousands, came from faraway places to hear this particular sermon. And the sermon was most likely longer than what we have in Matthew. And also, the event of the sermon might have lasted even more than a day, all right? So it's a different kind of format, and we're not quite sure all how long it went. But a sermon's length is basically based on two things, the gift of the preacher and the hunger of the congregation. And let me tell you, the congregations that's listening to Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 is starving. They are starving. And some of you today are also starving in a variety of ways, and maybe you are here inwardly, secretly, desperately unhappy. It is a common human malady to be unhappy. It's the cry of the human heart, and as Christ begins his sermon, he gives you actually literally the keys to happiness. The keys to happiness. Read aloud with me there in your outline, verses 3, 4, and 5 from this sermon, the starting of a sermon. Everyone together, ready? Here we go. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Let's look at this today. The Lord's intro is amazingly profound. They are beatitudes. Beatitudes are declarations, and there's eight of them, eight declarations or pronouncements of blessing. The word beatitude comes from a Latin word that means happy or blessed. And the Greek word has this idea and captures the idea of those who are fortunate, the undeserving, uh, the blessed recipients of God's grace and His mercy and His love and His constant concern and care. You're blessed. In fact, get this, Christian. As you understand blessedness here, it means that you today are the favored one. Did you have siblings when you were growing up and one sibling seemed like the favored one? Maybe it was the baby in the family. Anybody? Okay, you want to admit that? You're resentful, you've been working it through still, okay? Well, in the Mueller family, we joke about my brother, Mark, the older guy, the ugly one. Um, He was my grandma Nana's favorite. As Nana was getting older and losing her filter big time, to the horror of my mom, her mother, Nana, said in her Belgian accent in front of all of us children, Mark! He's my favorite. And my mom died a thousand deaths because that was just an absolute sin on her part. And us three Mueller kids thought that this was hysterical. And we've played on it now for about 35 years, okay? But imagine for a moment what it feels like to be a family of hated siblings, but you're the only favorite one. Only one. Imagine for a minute a team of players and you're the only one that the, the coach actually trusts. Or being in a workplace, and it's the only one that the boss likes. Everybody else he hates. Yeah, there are a lot of complications to that, but what does that do in the heart of the favored one? What does it do in his heart or her heart? Well, inner happiness, confidence, you know, kind of a, I'm the favored one. You know, I mean, 
you know, you, you have that sense of secret joy and blessing. Well, a few of you might know what that means, but many of you have never experienced it until you met Jesus Christ. And the moment you did, you became the favored one. That's what he's saying when he says blessed. You are the favored one, the one with the, the focus of my attention. The focus of my attention. This is you, Christian, in Christ. You have his favor. Out of billions of sinful people rejecting the Lord, Christ chose you. You love, why? Because he first loved you. And yet being blessed is far more than an emotion. Blessed refers to the deep inner joy that those who are desperately longing to be delivered from their just punishment, from their sins, from their evil inner nature, from the coming judgment of God, combined with being with uh, and being given a gracious, merciful, loving, undeserving gift of salvation lavished on you by the incredibly horrific sacrifice of Christ on your behalf. You are favored. Favored. This is why you're blessed. And, and Beatitudes are blessing. He's reminding you of what God has done. And the Beatitudes are like the fruit of the Spirit. Remember that when we studied that in Galatians 5? That when you have one of them, you have all of them. They, they all come as a package. And so the Beatitudes are the same. Maybe you're stronger at one Beatitude over another and weaker at one over the other. But each one of you and all of these character traits are intended by Christ for you to be living out. Every single one of you, even those of you in the back row, right? Everyone. Every Christian in this room, these are qualities that if you're born again, you desire them. You want them. And if you don't want them, and there's no manifestation of these in your heart or lived out in your behavior to some degree, then that most often indicates that you're not his child. These are indicative of a Christian, true of them. Not in the fullest sense, but definitely a want to. In fact, Jesus will warn us at the conclusion of this sermon, he'll say, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, and he'll say, I never knew you, what? Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So, the Lord will teach you today that true happiness comes to anyone who depends on Christ for everything. That's kind of the thematic of the Beatitudes. Really, true happiness comes to anyone who trusts Christ with everything. It just does. Last week in verses 1 and 2, we were encouraged to join the crowds on this huge slope that kind of slopes up from the Sea of Galilee. It's beautiful. The acoustics are great. The view's amazing. The weather's perfect. His 12 disciples are right around him, and his other disciples are then surrounding them. And then you here today are a part of this massive crowd of people learning this. Point number one in your outline. Here we are. It is happiness comes from the awareness of your spiritual bankruptcy. Happiness comes in the awareness of your spiritual bankruptcy, blessing in the form of citizenship. Take a look at verse 3. Blessed are the, say it out loud, poor in spirit. And now, now track with me, you're filling in blanks, I get it. So here we go, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poor in spirit is the first quality of the life of anyone who gets saved. As Jesus says here, to enter God's kingdom, are you ready? You need to be humble. Humble. Now, that's more than humble, because no one can be saved who is defiantly proud. Poverty of spirit is the only way into heaven. 
Humility of heart is the only way to be saved. The doorway into God's house is very low. You've got to crawl to get in. And understand, you can't be filled until you're empty. You, you can't be worthwhile until you're worthless. Uh, this flies in the face, right, of our me-first, of our self-love society. Would you agree? This flies in the face of that, but Christ calls you and I to be, are you ready? Nothing. Galatians 6.3, when you think you're something, when you're actually what? Nothing. You bring nothing to the table, Christian. Nothing for you to be saved. The true inner happiness only comes to the humble. And if you preoccupy yourself with your wants and your needs, then you won't see the matchless worth of Christ. Let me put it to you this way. Maybe you ought to write this down. If you don't see your poverty, you won't see his riches. If you don't own your poverty, you won't see his riches. If you don't see how doomed you are, then you won't treasure his rescue. It's in our deadness that we come alive. It's in the darkness that we begin to see the light, poor in spirit. Now let me clarify, what kind of poor is Jesus talking about? The poor here is some believe that Christ is commanding Christians to live poor. Give all your wealth away since they say the Lord wants you to be financially poor in order to be saved. Maybe you've read that. That's really bogus. Because if that were true, then the worst thing you could do is give money to somebody. Because as soon as you did that, you'd be preventing them from being poor and getting saved. Are you with me? Not a good idea. So get this. Riches often trip people up. Do you agree with that? Wealth often trips us up, and poor people do have a running start when it comes to desiring salvation, because in their desperation of being poor and not having all their needs met, they quickly realize that they need outside help, right? That's why Jesus said in Matthew 19, 24, take a look at it in your outline, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, and that's a literal needle, it's not a needle gate. He's saying this is impossible than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because the rich don't sense their need for a savior. That's the point. They'll always be poor, they'll always be wealthy, but that's not the focus of poor in the spirit. That's not what he's saying. Blessed are the poor in the spirit. The poor here in Matthew chapter 5 verse 3 means to cower. Write it down. It means to cringe like a beggar. Like a beggar. If you're in Jerusalem and you were crippled or blind or deaf or destitute, you might become a beggar. Now beggars today are not like the beggars back in the first century. So I got to make a distinction. Because I remember actually being in Israel and in Egypt and several other places on the planet and watching for two weeks a professional beggar. And he was awesome. He's just a normal looking dude, but all of a sudden he could crank it on, put on this super sad face and hold his hand out. And I mean, we're talking super sad. It's just in an instant. He's super gregarious, talking with his buddies. He sees somebody coming and bam, he's super sad. And he knows how to beg. That's not how it was in the first century. In the first century, what they did is they cowered. They cringed. I, I brought a little hashmanina or whatever my wife calls this thing. So, all right. So you, you put it like this. Beggars hid themselves. You wouldn't see their face. They were so ashamed of being a beggar, they didn't want to be identified. And so they would take their robe and they would cover their face and they'd put out their thing and they'd say, please give to the building, okay, that kind of thing. So, understand, that's what they would do. But Christ is saying, 
Those who are beggars are happy. Those who are beggars. You have nothing to contribute to your salvation. Nothing. You are totally dependent upon God's abundant grace. Happy are the cowering spirits. I'm a, I just, I, don't, I have nothing, Lord. I have nothing. Happy are those who don't trust in their own resources, but actually are empty beggars. This is how the hymn, Rock of Ages, describes it. It's beautiful. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Wow. John Piper summarizes poor in spirit this way. And, and I want you to write this word down. Either write the word sense down or awareness. He, he says it's a sense of powerlessness in ourselves. A sense or an awareness of spiritual bankruptcy, of, of helplessness before God, of a moral uncleanness before God, of personal unworthiness before God. If there's any life, any joy, any usefulness, it will have to be all of God, all of grace, all of mercy, all of love. It'll have to be God-giving. Piper uses the word sense as the same word like I would say awareness. Awareness of powerlessness. You're aware of bankruptcy. And this is why he says it. Because objectively, every one of us is already poor in spirit whether we sense it or not. Are you getting it? We're already poor in spirit. It's only the super happy who are aware of it. Very important you understand that. The moment you go to work, the moment you're at school and you forget and you're not sensing or aware of your poor in spirit status, that's when you lose your happiness. You need to be aware that you offer nothing and are a recipient of His grace. That's the key. Look at verse 3. Poor in spirit doesn't mean you lack enthusiasm. It doesn't mean that you have no sense of humor or you're passively indifferent in life. No, the person has a poor in spirit who lacks self-sufficiency. Self-sufficiency. You're humble. You're broken. You're low. You think of yourself as nothing. Again, Galatians 6.3, you are nothing. And James 4.10, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and He'll exalt you. Poor in spirit is internal humility Christ is everything, and you offer nothing. Again, verse 3, Jesus says, Blessing of the poor in spirit is, look at the second half of the verse now, for theirs is the what? Kingdom of heaven. Now, that's pretty simple. He's talking about eternal life, you know, the, the rule of Christ in heaven. And it's a factual statement here. The Greek theirs, when it says theirs is the kingdom of heaven, that's emphasized. It's theirs. This is a factual announcement, not a wish. And this kingdom of heaven is present tense. It's yours now. You don't have to wait a thousand year millennial kingdom. The reign of Christ will be fully realized later, but his rule and his blessings can be experienced now as his subjects, the subjects of Christ. It is the poor in spirit who alone enter and own the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is clearly saying this, all right? Don't lose this. To get into my kingdom in heaven, you have to be poor in spirit. That's what he's saying. Pretty simple. And when you are internally poor, then you receive the blessings of my eternal reign and rule. Think heaven for a second. Heaven. Are you excited? You should be. We shouldn't be dreading heaven. We should be anticipating heaven. 
that real place where God's children will be in perfect bodies, perfect hearts, singing, serving, supervising, sharing, studying, and joyously delighting forever. Ever. Those who are spiritual paupers now will be spiritual billionaires in God's eternal kingdom. In fact, to be poor in spirit, you must believe that you cannot achieve happiness on your own. Let me add this. All your efforts to achieve happiness on your own will actually prevent you from happiness. Are you getting it? Our way does not achieve it. God's way does. Happiness can only come from Christ. For the Christian, it's one who wants Christ as their first love, and you can't stand anything that keeps you from your first love. Anything that competes with Christ as first love. It is the Christian who destroys uh, all forms of pride and self-sufficiency. You just don't want it. What are some of the characteristics of poor in spirit? Poor in spirit are super thankful people. They don't complain because, you know why? Any day you're not in hell is a pretty good day. Right? Right? And, and since you see yourself as a beggar, you esteem, you appreciate not only your salvation, but the gifts and strengths of others. Other people bring blessing to your life. A beggar is always asking. He's always pleading. And so, two true poor and spirit individuals are those who are given to prayer. They're always asking. Poor in spirit don't add Christ as a part of their lifestyle. They want Christ involved in everything in their lifestyle and everything that they have in life. And right now, the question is, are you truly a spiritual cripple in your heart of hearts who has come to Christ poor in spirit? Because true happiness comes to anyone who depends on Christ for everything. That's true happiness. Number two, all right, beatitude. Second beatitude, happiness comes from the awareness of deep grief over sin, blessing in the form of comfort. Awareness of your deep grief over sin. That's what he means when he says, Matthew chapter 5 verse 4, blessed are those who what? Mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, Jesus is, everybody's listening to this and everybody's mouth is dropping open And maybe you're not getting the full weight of this because what he's saying is happy are the sad. Doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? Because what he's saying is what our world values is the opposite of what Christ values. The world says the greatest in the world is to be the man in charge, the woman in charge. The greatest in Christ is the servant, the slave. The greatest in the world is the first. The greatest in Christ's kingdom is the last. The greatest in the world is the wealthy, and the greatest in Christ's kingdom are the, what? Poor in spirit. Jesus says, happy are the sad. You know, in my life, I've got to be honest with you, I run from sorrow, right? You know, as a pastor, I enter into people's sorrow, but personally, when sorrow hits my own life, I'm like, I want to avoid that like the plague. Is anybody with me on that? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so some of you are honest. All right, that's good. In order for me to find comfort and hope, I, I run away from sorrow, but here... Our greatest friend says mourning actually brings happiness. There are nine different Greek words in the New Testament, I looked them all up, which describe grief or mourning. And guess what? This is the strongest one. 
This is the most intense one. So what does the Lord mean when He says, to be happy you must mourn? Well, the Bible teaches there is a worldly sorrow and there's a godly sorrow, right? Both. And these are telling you that there's a mourning and a weeping and a sadness that is shallow, empty, and hypocritical emotion. Phony, worldly sorrow. And there's a mourning and a sadness which actually comes from God. Take a look at 2 Corinthians 7.10 in your outline. Take a look at it. It says, For the sorrow that is according to the will of God, the good one, produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world, so he's talking about two different kinds of sorrow here, produces death. So then he talks about the sorrow of God, the will of God, the good one. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, with this godly sorrow, has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. You're doing something about this sorrow. In everything you demonstrate, you prove it. It's lived out yourselves to be innocent of the matter. People cry and mourn for different reasons, right? Uh, and if you've lived long enough, sometimes people cry because their lust wasn't satisfied, their strong desires, or they often cry because of the guilt over their sin. But true godly sorrow is when you recognize that you are nothing because of your sin. It's a deep internal agony, like the mourning of the death of a loved one, and yet this sorrow results in complete forgiveness and brings comfort. Listen, Jesus is not telling you to bottle it all up. He says if you bottle up your sin, you're going to ruin your life. When you confess your sin, when you agree with God, 1 John 1, 9, and you say the same thing that he says about sin, that he's not responsible, that you are, and you admit it, then you are blessed. So to biblically mourn according to the will of God, you will be constantly broken over your sin. Yes, you can still laugh, but not over your sinfulness. Not over your sinfulness. In fact, so many respond to their sinfulness improperly. They deny it. They ignore it. uh, They think of themselves above sin. They beat themselves up over their sin. But instead, you must admit it. Do you? That's part of the mourning that he's talking about here. The prodigal son didn't say, Oh, pig slop, not so bad. I'll survive. I can do this. No. He recognized that he had to repent to admit, admit your sin. To mourn biblically is to repeatedly, continually say, O wretched man or a wretched woman that I am. To confess, to repent, and get help over sin. Those are the three steps we find in the New Testament. Confess, repent, and get help. Confess, say the same thing, and to repent is to turn from that, uh, again, sovereignly and, and supernaturally given, and to get help is to reach out to the church body. Join Paul and show his heart by being aware of your sin and say with Paul, I am currently and continually, right, the chief of sinners. Is that you? That's the mourner. That's the mourner. Jesus says that kind of heart shall be, verse 4, be comforted. Comforted. You're not blessed or happy by mourning. You're blessed by being comforted. You see the need for comfort? Look at 2 Corinthians 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Thank you all five of you. Who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Having broken us, A good and gracious Father also blesses us with holy comfort. 
So you're, you're confessing your sin, but then you're comforted. Uh, your Savior will always admonish, console, strengthen, and forgive, and that's comforting. Comfort is a place of safety. Comfort is confidence that the Lord loves you. Comfort is that He loves you and is all-wise and all-powerful and you can trust Him. Comfort is the calmness of heart in the midst of difficulties. Um, you fall into your Father's arms. Remember that when you were a kid? Maybe, maybe parents, you remember this with your kids. You know, when they're, when they're defiant and they're standing, you know, and they're, nah, they're not admitting, they're not crushed under the weight of their own disobedience, you, you just, no, nobody's happy, right? They're not happy, you're not happy. Are you tracking with me? Yeah, nobody's happy. But then when they finally, oh, dear, I'm sorry, then, and they fall into your arms, then they're what? Happy, and you're happy, right? Come on, nod just a little bit. Okay, thank you. They're happy. At that point, when the brokenness sets in, everybody's happy. Father's happy, and children are happy. That's what he's talking about, the mourn. He's saying that's where the comfort comes in. It's when you are admitting that you've been defiant, you've gone your own way, then you crawl into your father's arms and you're comforted. See the imagery there? That's what he's talking about. Christ comforts. It's a peace which comes knowing your eternity is secure in Christ. And the Greek tense tells us that as long as you continue to mourn, you will be comforted in the future. You mourn over your own sin. Happiness comes to sad people. Not because you're sad, but because their sadness, as you confess, repent, and get help with your sin, leads to comfort. And you're constantly doing that. It's an ongoing tense here. And if you want to stifle your happiness, and some of you have, and currently do, and I think probably every Christian has at some point, then love your sin. Harbor secret sin. Excuse your sin. Not that bad. Saying things like, it isn't that bad. Or I'm not as sinful as Sean Farrell, so I gotta be okay. Or to wreck happiness, you simply delay in dealing with sin, or you drown out all your awareness of sin. And we are classic in our culture at drowning out our awareness of sin. We just turn the music up louder and louder, do we not? So we don't have to think about stuff. And we get activity, and we have our friends, and we stay busy. And finally, to not confess, not repent, and not get help with sin, that's going to stifle your happiness. You want to crawl into your Father's arms. To confess again, one more time, is to agree with God in prayer specifically that you're responsible for your sin and God is not. To repent is to change your mind, which always leads to an 180 degree change away from your sin. You repent of that. And getting help is telling other Christians from the church to hold you up in prayer and relationally support you with your specific sin struggles. And in a safe church, a church where we all know that we're sinners, that we all know we're growing, that we haven't become perfect until we get to heaven, we can admit our sin to one another. Can I hear an amen to that? You can. What is your sensitivity level to sin? Are you sensitive to your internal battles, the ones that nobody sees of selfishness, pride? That's, that's a really tough one, pride, to see that. Faulty motives, distorted thinking, a lot easier for us to identify lust or anger, fear, worry. You know, sometimes just through life, you know, you're carrying a can or a cup or whatever, you get a little dab of water on you. Have you seen that? Just drips, right? The can just drips on your shirt. Anybody with me? 
Okay, thank you. Gosh, you guys, come on. Well, see, we're all aware that sometimes we get dabs, and then, you know, the heat comes and it just dries out and no big deal. But there are other times in your life where you have been, what, soaking wet, right? Absolutely drenched. So the question is, are you one of those, when it comes to sin sensitivity, are you a dab or are you soaking? How much aware are you of your sin? Christian, you will mourn biblically as you recall Christ's love for you, proven by his suffering and sacrifice for your sin, only when you own that your Savior died, bearing the punishment you deserve, only when you mourn and you recognize by through confession, through repentance, through getting help, then you enjoy his comfort. Because blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. You have this massive awareness of your status before God. Because true happiness, get this, write it down, only comes to anyone who depends on Christ for everything. Everything. Number three. Third beatitude. Ready? Happiness comes from the awareness of your dependence on God. Happiness comes from the awareness. You sense it. You know it. You're dependent on God. And blessing in the form of eternal reward. Dependence. Matthew 5, five. Ready? I'm going to ask you to ask, answer this question. Blessed are the what? Gentle. For they shall inherit the, the earth. Now this statement shocked the Lord's audience. We don't get it the same way they got it. Because it would be totally foreign to them. Understand in first century Judaism, that first century audience knew how to be spiritually proud and self-sufficient. They were keeping the externals, the oral traditions, the religiosity. But instead of praising them for their religiosity, Jesus teaches them, blessed are the gentle. Now write down the word meek, because that's really what gentle is, is meekness. Gentle or meekness is different than being broken in spirit or poor in spirit, and and it's different than actually mourning. The previous beatitude, mourning, focuses on your sinfulness. Now get this. Meekness focuses on God's holiness. God's holiness. We must be broken in spirit because we're sinners, mourn over that. That's the focus of your own sinfulness. But we should be meek before a holy God. And Jesus is telling us that happiness for His children is those children who are realistic about their sin, repentant over their sin, and responsive to God over their sin. Are you getting it? That's key. Realistic, repentant, and responsive. Are you meek? Are you meek? Titus chapter 3, verse 2. Malign no one. Be peaceable, gentle. And then it says, showing every what? Consideration. That's the word meekness there. It is. Showing every meekness to all men. Ephesians 4, 1. Showing tolerance at the end of the verse. That's really the word meekness, showing meekness for one another in love. The Pharisees wanted a miraculous Messiah. The the Essenes wanted a monastic Messiah. Uh, The Zealots wanted a militaristic Messiah, but Jesus came as a meek Messiah. Meek. And the only people who will ever be happy are the meek. Therefore, you need to know what meek means. It always reminds me of a cartoon. Meek! I don't know why, okay? 
Meekness is gentleness. It does have that element to it. The root word means mild, gentle, and soft. The root word. And a meek person is tender-hearted, they're patient, and they're submissive. That's a meek person. Secondly, meekness, write this down, is power under control. Power under control. It doesn't mean that you can't be a leader, a lion, bold and strong. But to be meek, you're acting like a soothing medicine. You're acting like a broken horse. Or you're acting like a gentle breeze. Now let me explain those. A medicine that's under control is helpful. But if it's out of control, it can kill you. Right? A, a horse that is broken is, and meek is an incredible asset and helpful, but out of control, it can stomp on you. A, a breeze under control is refreshing, but a breeze that turns into a hurricane can kill you and destroy. So to be meek is a leader, a husband, an elder, a disciple, or a woman of God, a Titus 2 a godly gal who is power under control. They have great ability, but they don't use it in that manner. In fact, meekness is descriptive of Christ, and it describes Him as meek, and it describes Moses as meek. Therefore, meekness should be our target because it's a Christ-like attitude. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 1, it says, I, Paul, myself urge you, are you ready for this? By the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Power under control. Abraham. Abraham could have pressed Lot and his shepherds. Hey, get out of here and go to the desert. Quit bugging my shepherds. But in meekness, he gave Lot the choice of the land and Lot chose the better pasture. Joseph. He could have, he could have, he, he really could have thrown his brothers in jail in revenge. Could he have not? Kind of, justified, okay, you did it to me, I'm just going to put you in there for a day, you know, or something. That would have been Chris's thinking. Joseph sold them and, you know, not into slavery, but he embraced them in meekness and said, you meant it for evil and God meant it for good. David could have taken Saul's life twice, twice, but in meekness he spared him. Moses could have elevated himself accepted authority, but instead in meekness, he acknowledged the Lord who is the one in charge. He did exercise leadership, but he knew that God is the one who is the head. And Numbers chapter 12, verse 3, now the man Moses was very, it says humble, it's really meek, more than any man who was on the face of the earth. What happens to those who are in salvation given a meek heart? Let me tell you again, you don't work this up. This is what's given to you, and then you're working it out in behavior. Listen, when you are given a meek heart, you will be happy. Please write this down. Meekness removes all striving from your heart. When you develop a meekness, what he's calling for here, this gentleness, spiritually, it's almost surgically, he removes all strife from your heart. Listen, is Jesus trying to tell you how to be happy, yes or no? Wait, wait, wait. You're not getting it. And I need you to respond first hour. I know it's early and some of you didn't have coffee. So here we go. Did, is Jesus trying to teach you how to be happy, yes or no? Yes. Isn't it amazing what he does? He says, well, meekness 
remove all striving from your heart. Want to be happy? Man, get that out of your heart, right? And that's what meekness does. That's amazing to me. And Jesus says, verse 5, that the meek shall, look what he says, shall inherit what? The earth. Part of your inheritance is to inherit the earth. You and I get the planet. Dibs on Carlsbad, okay? This is eschatological hope for all the meek, everyone, to inherit the earth. Now, normal interpreters of Scripture, just if you're going to let the Bible speak for itself, see this clearly as the future coming kingdom. Christ describes this literal earthly kingdom where we reign with Christ on earth in Revelation 20. And then he talks about our future home when heaven and earth are together forever on planet earth in Revelation 21 and 22. And he says, you, you inherit that. But there's actually a sense here where he's saying the kingdom of Christ is ours now. It's not just merely an escrow. All right? It's not just coming. Jesus is saying, you don't have to fight for your kingdom like Russia, China, and the U.S. Instead of being militaristic and fighting for your rights, what I need, claiming what is yours, be meek. Meekness is actually necessary for salvation and is the result of salvation. Psalm 149 verse 4 says, the Lord will beautify the afflicted ones. That's meek the meek ones with salvation. The Lord will beautify the meek ones with salvation. God commands you and I to be meek. It's the only way to receive God's word. It's the only way to to be an effective witness. It's the only way to glorify God. And God put that in you and then we are to develop it by the power of the Spirit. It's only the meek who are self-controlled, obedient to God's word, able to make peace and receive even criticism well. Are you meek? There's, there's, do you find you falling short of these qualities? Anybody with me? Anyone want to nod your head? Yeah! We're in this together. But you know what Christ is doing? He's taking that external religion and he's just going, whack! He's just chopping it off going, this is the real thing. This is what God does. This is what God does in changing lives. He gives you these beatitudes, these, these qualities, these incredible transformed new nature elements that now are being manifested. And it's only the meek who will be truly happy because true happiness comes to anyone who depends on Christ for everything. So take this home with me. Ready? Letter A. Letter A. Are you aware? Are you aware? Examine your heart, my beloved family. Are you aware of your powerlessnessness? Are you aware of your spiritual bankruptcy? Are you aware of your helplessness before God, your moral uncleanness before God? Are you aware of your personal unworthiness before God? Do you sense it? Are you aware of it? Do you daily recall that? If there's to be any life, any joy, any usefulness, every action has to be all of God and all of grace and all of mercy and all by the power of the Spirit. Spirit. You can't do this in your own. I can't do it in my own. Can't. Each of you are powerless, helpless, Unclean, unworthy, but only the blessed are those who are aware. And when they're aware, they're dependent. And when they're dependent, they become happy. Each of you. Only the blessed are aware and accepted and live by it. Do you sense that you're soaked with sin or just maybe dabbed with a little disobedience now and then? Do you really realize how low you are and how high and holy God is and how far he had to go to rescue you 
And are you broken under His holiness? Recognize that everything you are and everything you do only matters if it's empowered by the Spirit for the glory of God. Are you aware? Letter B. Are you into appearance? Now, what you look like today, even speak and act. Now, this is the external religion of the first century Jew at this point. It really, it was really, it was really corrupted. And, and really, that's not the issue, what Jesus is getting at. What you speak, what you act, what you look like. He's speaking to religious people, and he's doing open-heart surgery on them and just driving the truth into their hearts. That they'd realize that appearance isn't the issue, but your heart is. Don't walk out of here today, especially you in the back row there, okay? I can see you right yeah, there. Thanks for waving. Okay, I got it. And go back to the way you were. Pray that if you are saved, then your heart is transformed and these audacious attitudes become more of your passionate desire. Dependently, humbly, passionately seeking, seeking to live them out. There are so many in the core of our church family that, that show glimmers of Christ's Beatitudes all the time. And we love that. But these here are for those of you who are new with this, who claim Christ, each one of you, yes, you, all of you, especially the back row. Last time you sit back there, right? To live this out, becoming a spiritual beggar with a biblical hatred for their own sin is someone who recognizes their sin as a mourner and also develops a meek heart That's the people who are realistic about their sin. People who are repentant over their sin, responsive to God for their sin, making them helpful, useful, and refreshing. Are you driven by those internal issues? An internal heart for Christ, or are you merely just appearing as a Christian? Because that's what they were doing. Those people on the slope were all appearing to be very dedicated Hebrews. And Christ is cutting through their externals and their oral tradition going, no, it's your heart. Let her see. Are you truly altered? That's my letter A word for converted. Say, born again. Are you a genuine Christian? Conversion is not a one-time event with no effect on how you live. No, salvation is a moment of radical change and you become aware of it sometimes instantly, sometimes gradually. But when you look back, you say, I am a new person. I want things differently. I know things are biblically different now and don't miss this Jesus is telling you what a transformed heart looks like in the Beatitudes is that you being saved is not repeating some formula prayer it's actually being transformed internally it's turning from idols to serving the living God it's from self-justification to Christ justification it's from self-rule to God rule conversion is what happens when God and by the way he's in charge he doesn't need you He never needed you. He is complete and awesome on His own. But by His grace and mercy and love, He chose you. And when He awakens those who are spiritually dead and enables them to repent of their sins and live by trusting faith in Christ, then you will begin to manifest these heart changes. Slowly, lifelong for sure. But are you truly altered? Are you truly converted? Are you born again? Are you truly a Christian? If not, would you cry out to Him? I'm pleading with you. Try out that He would internally transform you. That you would come to an end of yourself, have nothing to offer Him, and say, I am a beggar, and I have nothing to offer you. You have to give me everything. And you did it by your death and resurrection on the cross. And in your heart you say, Lord, I want to submit to you. 
And all God's people said, Amen. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for these beatitudes. We pray that you would use them to transform us and change our lives in a way that would bring you glory, and you deserve it all. We love you. We thank you for being our God and our King. And again, if there are any here who don't know you, Lord, begin that process of awakening them so that they might be able to respond to you and that they might know what it means to be transformed and made new. And all of us, Father, need the encouragement to stir up a really a heart-driven faith, one that is internal, where we're mourning over our sin, we recognize we're poor in spirit, and we really want to be meek and dependent upon you and humble and gracious. And Father, we pray that only you could cultivate that and cause that to increase and grow in our lives. We'll give you all the glory. And in Christ's name and all God's people said, amen. Thanks for listening today. Sermon audio from the last three years is available by podcast. And a larger archive from Chris Mueller and Faith Bible Church can be found at media.faith-bible.net. And if you would, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps a lot. Thanks, and have a great day.